Welcome to the Find Your Awesome Podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott and I'm your host. I'm an intuitive human design reader, a certified professional coach, and an instigator of joy. And I'm so glad you're here for this super special episode. This is episode 200. 200. 200 episodes of the Find Your Awesome Podcast. I started this little baby in the camper. Pete and I sold our house in Maine in 2016, and we traveled around the country in a tiny camper for 16 months. And in that time, I started this podcast and I had so many magical, incredible conversations. And the podcast has grown and evolved so much. I've never had uh, an outcome goal for this podcast or really for much in my life. I'm more of a process goal type. And my process goals have always been to share amazing, inspiring humans, to share stories that inspire you, that enlighten you, that teach you, share stories of vulnerability and bravery and humanness and spiritual growth and personal growth and perseverance and badassery. And I'm really psyched with what I've created so far. 200 times I showed up. I showed up consistently 200 times. I am built for consistency. And yet, so it's it's easy-ish, ish, big-ish for me. And 200 things. I made 200 things. That's pretty cool. And I'm saying I, this is totally not a solo effort. Huge shout out to my team. My husband, Pete, edits every single one, except for one. And he does such an amazing job. And now he writes the show notes too. Well, and then I sometimes rewrite them, but it doesn't matter. He is so incredibly helpful. And then there's Kristen and Jamie that actually post this and get it out to all the places. And there's Danielle who always swoops in to help with everything. She's yeah. She makes everything pretty. This is a team effort. And of course, there's all the guests who are willing and open to co-create conversations that serve with me. I am so grateful to every single person who has ever been involved in this project with me. I'm so grateful for the friendships I've developed from this podcast. This is just... Way to go past Kelsey. You made a really good decision in starting this and I'm really excited to continue it. Also, when I started, I made this commitment to myself. Like I said, I'm into process goals. I made this commitment to myself that I wasn't going to look at the numbers until I was a year into it. Meaning I'm not going to look at how many people have downloaded the podcast. Well, one year came And I think at some point I did try briefly to look at the numbers, but I couldn't, I didn't have the login information or something, something happened. The universe stepped in and said, do you really want to do that? And I said, no. And so 200 episodes in, I have no idea what my download numbers are, nor do I have any desire to know. So if you're someone who's going to tell me how I can find out or tell me what they are, please don't. I'm not doing this for the numbers. I'm doing this for the process. I'm doing this to create beautiful powerful, impactful, helpful conversations that elevate your life. And that is my reason for doing this. I'm not going to do anything differently depending on how many people are listening. 
Okie dokie. Enough about me. Let's talk about this beautiful conversation, which feels so perfect for episode 200. We are talking about self-compassion. In fact, Melissa Mayer is teaching us a masterclass in self-compassion. Melissa was on the podcast way back when I was in the camper. She's like, I don't know, probably within the first 20 or 30 episodes. So if you fall in love with her here, go back and listen to her there. And that was before she had done her mindfulness training, her deep mindfulness training, which I'm about to tell you about. She still was way on top of all things mindfulness. And she is such a guide in this space for me. And she's just such a brilliant human. Melissa Mayer is a certified professional coach and certified mindfulness meditation teacher. As a graduate of Jack Kornfield and Tara Brack's two-year-long mindfulness meditation teacher certification program. As a mindfulness coach, Melissa serves as a loving, non-judgmental partner for curious, self-aware seekers and fellow coaches who want to deepen their mindfulness practice, embolden their intuition, and engage more compassionately with their internal and external landscape so they can take wise action that nurtures positive change in their own lives and the lives of others. You can find everything about Melissa at melissamaircoaching.com. Now let's get into it. I love you. You are a miracle. You are incredible. Go forth and be awesome. Melissa, thank you so much for coming back. It's been a while since we talked. Well, since we've talked. It's been a few years. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you. I'm honored to be here again. Yeah. You sent this email a couple months ago mm-hmm. about, it was a story about your daughter and, but the whole basis was self-compassion and it was so beautiful. Would you be willing to share that story? Oh, Sure. Yeah. So I have a now two-year-old daughter who has now spent exactly half of her life in pandemic lockdown mode. Um, We canceled her first birthday to just a few days before lockdown formally started. So we've been 24-7 kind of pandemic parenting with her here. And she recently was going through a little sleep regression where she was having trouble falling asleep at night. So we live in a San Francisco apartment with sort of thin floors and there we have a neighbor downstairs who has a three-year-old, a three-year-old son. And so she was having trouble falling asleep at night. So she was up a little later than she normally would be. And so she would occasionally hear him crying when he was falling asleep. And it was sort of shocking to her. I think it was like the veil was removed. You know, she'd been in this little cocoon where she didn't know that other things were happening when she fell asleep. And suddenly it was like, wait, what, what is that? And she was, you know, scared and upset and she would cry. She spent a few nights like really wailing, like really crying when she would fall asleep, which is completely not the norm for her at all. And she initially would say, Audrey scared, Sammy crying, or Audrey sad, Sammy crying. And he would just cry, cry, cry. And we started sort of doing this nighttime ritual with her of slowing things down, giving ourselves an extra runway up to bedtime, allowing some time for extra stories, some extra cuddling in her chair, a little extra rocking before before laying her down. 
and started really talking, you know, having a conversation with her. She's a quite verbal little two-year-old. So she really, she really likes to, to chat about all the things. So we were chatting about this, you know, she'd be crying and start to say, well, he is crying. Oh, that can feel sad. That can feel scary, huh? When you hear someone someone crying. I feel sad when I hear someone crying too. Sometimes I feel scared when I hear someone crying and didn't expect it too. That can be, that can be kind of jarring. It can be scary. And she's like, yeah. And then we would tell her, you know, Sammy has his mom and dad down there though with him. He has, he has Frankie with him, which is their dog. He, you know, sometimes he just needs to get out those wiggles before, before night night. Sometimes he just needs to let his body release. He just needs to let it go. And she knows the song, let it go. So she totally got that, thinks that's funny. And she's, and she would say, Audrey, let it go sometimes too. Like, she's like, okay, I, you know, I get it. I cry sometimes too. I get out the wiggles sometimes too. And as a few nights went on, her crying started to kind of start to quiet down as his continued. And she started to repeat these phrases periodically throughout the day and at nighttime without me prompting them. Um, so she would even just think of Sammy crying and she would start to say, well, one of the things I'd been saying to her was, you know, and you're safe. You're here with mom and dad are here with you. Sammy's safe with his mom and dad and you're safe. Your mom and dad are here. We're here if you need us. Um, you know, and, and you know how to get cozy with your, your Marys, she calls her bunnies in her crib, her Marys and, um, and, and, you know, right. You, you know how to get snuggly with, with your Marys and her. And she's like, yeah, and she's like, and it's okay if you feel sad and, and you're also safe and Sammy's safe and Sammy's okay. And Audrey's okay. And so as the nights were on, she started repeating these phrases to herself on her own. She would, as soon as she would start to think about Sammy crying, she would say things like, you safe, you okay, mama here, Audrey safe. And she would kind of rock her body a little back and forth. Like you could, and you could just feel her nervous system start to settle and her little body physically start to relax and calm down. And she just started, you know, eventually started going, going to sleep, whether they were, whether he was crying or not. And it just struck me so powerfully as how self-compassion works and what we're doing as adults with this practice, that even if we didn't receive that sense, that embodied sense of safety in our earliest relationships from our parents or from our primary caregivers when we were tiny babies, pre-consciously, you know, soaking that in, um, even if we didn't have that sense of safety then, we can re- install, reinstill, reconnect to that sense of safety for ourselves as adults. And that that's really what we're doing with self-compassion practice. We're starting to learn to tend to acknowledge and tend to our own needs in a soothing way. And in a way that literally soothes our nervous system down. It lets our brain know that it's safe to relax and start to release the hormones that allow the body to, to relax and settle. And we can create that sense of safety and the sense of resilience that comes with it by practicing self-compassion as adults. And if we got a head start with that sense of safety and the nervous system having sort of a set point of general relaxation, a general sense of, you know, it's generally safe to relax. Like we can, you know, scan for danger, but relax as soon as the danger is gone or relax more easily once the danger is gone, um, that we get a head start of course, in life, if, if we have that installed, but it's been really so beautiful and so 
potent to see her little neural connections, neural pathways, make these connections already that she's starting to know how to soothe herself. And we didn't have to teach her that. That wasn't initially my intention in telling her she was safe, right? My intention, that's just the natural instinct of a parent, right? It's just let her know because she is. That was the reality in the moment. She actually is safe. It's not like we're... Um, going like Pollyanna style and trying to like, just tell her like, it's okay. It's like, if a kid is upset, we're not gonna tell them it's okay if they don't feel okay. We're gonna acknowledge what doesn't feel okay and, and let them know that it's okay to feel whatever she's feeling. And in a moment when she's actually safe, but her little system doesn't know that yet, she needs an assist from someone who has a developed prefrontal cortex to come in and let her know that you, you are safe. So it's just, it was so amazing how fast she got that and how fast her little body would calm down as soon as she told herself you say mama here it, you know it's okay and then that just rocking and and that that's how we know self-compassion works that two of the universal triggers for calming the nervous system with self-compassion are soothing verbalizations like you're safe it's okay exactly the words that she was saying to herself um, and some soothing physical gesture. So like her natural instinct to rock herself. And of course that was coming partly from us rocking her in our arms as we were telling her that, but that, that really, um, we were able to access that soothing capacity. We're able to soothe our, soothe ourselves with practice. And of course it gets harder to do. It takes more work down the line. Once we have a ton of conditioning with the inner critic and things, um, trying to keep us safe in other ways but it's been really, really so potent to see from the clean slate perspective, just how fast and efficiently it works to soothe this down, just a few soothing words and a little soothing touch and just dropping in the sense of, I'm okay, I'm safe in, in this actual moment of reality, not in what the mind fears might be happening, but in, then in this actual physical moment, there's actually no lion about to chomp me right here, right now. There's so much gold in this story, Melissa. Yeah. Talk right. to me about what, what this, came up for you with this. It. So the first thing is the, the way she rocked herself and that, so you know, in Kristen Neff's research around self-compassion, she says that like embrace yourself or touch herself, like just kind of like pat your arm or whatever and tell yourself it's okay as adults. I'm sure as like adolescents too, people would be like, oh, what? I don't like, I'm not going to pat myself and tell myself it's okay. I'm not going to hug myself. Like I'll tell myself, I'll do the positive self-talk, but actually like physically soothing myself, it sounds ridiculous. And yet we've got this example right here, this not even two-year-old at the time who just does what comes naturally and rocks herself. So if she's brave enough to do it, perhaps we could be too. And if she knows to do it, she just like innately knows to do this. Mm -hmm. Then um, I think, I think she's onto something. And, and you just pointed to, of course, as adults, the stumbling blocks to self-compassion. I'm guessing you, this comes up a lot with people you, talk with and listening to this podcast and that you work with um but the resistance to self-compassion tends to be really fierce yeah um and starting to get to be more and more well documented there are now more than a thousand clinical research studies on self-compassion 
and by now it's probably, that was a few years ago. That was like two something years ago, actually, when that was true. So I'm sure it's, it's like becoming, a, it's this burgeoning field of study, just like mindfulness was, because we're really starting to see again, what we innately know to be true. We're now able to prove with the science and that tends to help the skeptics and the cynics <laughs> get on board a little more because, and we need that, right? Because most of us, our minds, we have been so conditioned to, um, just do it our do it things ourselves, bootstrap it, you know, um, and and this the sort of you know the downside of the sort of good vibes only, um, toxic positivity kind of side of things of like the the self quote unquote self help industry, self development industry can be that the the bypassing as you know like the bypassing the depth of our actual suffering, which is completely re if when we're experiencing suffering we're experiencing suffering period and so for most of us our conditioning will be will you know often say like oh well you know my I don't have it that bad there are so many people in the world or especially like in a moment of COVID like in the pandemic around it would be so easy to downplay our own suffering and say oh my gosh well I you know we have our jobs and I live in a safe place and I'm healthy and you know we're really fine so who am I to complain and that really, really keeps us locked in the suffering, the struggle by, by diminishing and dismissing the extent of the suffering. So this is where mindfulness and self-compassion are completely interwoven that mindfulness supports self-compassion and self-compassion supports mindfulness. You can come in from either angle. And there's actually research now that some research that shows that people who have practiced self-compassion prior to starting a mindfulness practice are more likely to stick with their mindfulness practice. Oh, that's which makes sense, right? Because we can bring an attitude of friendliness toward ourselves and stay with ourselves when it's hard. Mm. And this is the paradox of self-compassion is that it actually helps us. It fosters resilience. So many of us have the fear that if we practice self-compassion, we'll get to be this passive, soft, self-indulgent, lazy person. And the research all shows exactly the opposite. It actually nurtures resilience and bravery, the courage to actually lean into are what we're actually feeling and experiencing and, and, and take useful, skillful, wise action to help alleviate the suffering. That's, that's really bold, actually. That actually takes a lot of strength. And so it's th this paradox that so many of us shy away from treating ourselves more kindly for fear that we won't be able to get anything done in our lives. The, the, the type A, you know, the striver, the driver, the good student, the gold star getter, the quote unquote successful person, the fear is that we'll become this, this sloth. And actually the exact opposite is true, but we don't know it. Cognitively, we won't get that. Conceptually, we can't believe it. So we have to be willing to dip a toe in to start to see what happens as things soften up in there <laughs> and notice and notice what happens when we do start to let our inner critic move to the back seat and let this inner advocate essentially come to the front seat that comes in with a sense of support, which really is just saying like, I'm here with you. It's okay, we've got this, we've done this before. We know how to handle this. It's just a basic sense of this is hard, acknowledging that this is hard and you can do something, you can do something here, but it's not bypassing the, this is hard part. <laughs> we have to be willing to first see and say, this is hard. And that's where the mindfulness comes in where we're able to start to lessen our judgment about the experience, just non-judgmentally look at it and say, oh, sadness is here. Oh, shame is present right now. Oh, terror. 
is here, whether it's in the mind, instead of the mind justifying, you know, downplaying it and saying like, oh, there's no need to be scared because X, Y, Z is like, well, bullshit, pardon my language. If you're scared, you're scared. So we need the mindfulness to look and say, this is fear. There's that just, that's just what's present. That's just true in the moment. That's, that's true. If you're experiencing fear, you're experiencing fear. So paradoxically, if we try to work our way around the fear instead of working through it, the fear just stays and gets amplified and leaks out in these crazy ways. And then we become reactive in our relationships and all the things that happen. And so what we're doing with self-compassion is, is just like we were do, like, just like we would do with a two-year-old is turn toward it and say like, oh, that is sad, isn't it? That does feel sad. Ouch, like, yeah, that's hard. Being human is hard sometimes. Um, and we can cultivate a sense of safety, even and, and a sense of resilience, even though being human is hard sometimes. So it's not, we're not being indulgent. We're actually cultivating this real strength to take action about the sense of struggle. But man, our Western mind conditioning sure does have a lot to say for a lot of us about why this can't be true and why it can't be as simple as telling yourself it's okay and rocking yourself a little, <laughs> for example. <laughs> the mind wants to overcomplicate it. And so the practice is so much about just being willing to dip a toe in and just see what happens as you just let it be like an experiment to just see what happens for a day, a week three weeks, a month, whatever you're willing to try <laughs> um, to see what happens when anytime you notice the inner critic ramp up and, or, you know, this, the sort of self-judgment kick in, what happens when we pause and check out what's the tender feeling underneath the desire to take some external action or to dismiss or downplay what we're feeling. Really, we get in the practice of leaning into what's the actual most vulnerable feeling in there and what does it need right now? And and so that, of course, is really effectively uh, a reparenting process. Um, whether we had the best childhood imaginable or we had really absentee caregivers, it, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's effective in the same way that we remind ourselves that we can, we can meet our own needs, which of course lets us relax more because we don't have to go grasping and striving and plucking, trying to yank our needs out of other people, AKA trying to control the experience around us. And we can really take that locus of control internally, which is the only place we have it, of course, and actually start to work with, notice what happens when we're feeling like our needs are met internally. What happens to us in the external realm? What do we, how do we behave differently when we're able to meet a huge portion of our own needs internally? Does that mean we don't have external needs that we meet in relationships? Of course not. It just means we don't depend on them with this life or death, death grip. It's not like you need to meet my needs or else. You need to meet my expectations or else is the subtext, right? Like when self-compassion really is really this fierce meeting of our own needs. And then we start to open up to this freedom. You can just go about your life. Just go do what you want to do in the world because your mind starts to relax. Your body starts to relax. You're not constantly so hypervigilantly looking for risk out there on the plains. You're able to actually um, notice when that sense of fear comes up and check out, is this real or is it not? Is this real in reality? Something that needs to be addressed? Is there, you know, is there a COVID risk in this moment? where I really do need to go get tested or double wash my hands or double mask or whatever the thing is, 
Or is this just my, I've been in my house for the last four months and literally we haven't left and there's zero risk. And that's just the mind spinning about the possibility that you might die tomorrow of COVID. Like the self-compassion actually lets us sort that out. We, and mindfulness, of course, as well, that we look at the reality of what's happening in the moment. We create it's like what we, the mind thinks might happen. Yes. It's like we're creating that space that's like, okay, this is what's real. This is what I'm experiencing. There's a space between those two things. What do that's I want right. to do with that space? That's right. Sometimes in this work, it's um, talked about as what we're feeling is real, but not true. Mm. We're feeling something like fear, right? So for some people that resonates and for some, it doesn't take it or leave it to people listening if it doesn't land with you. But th- that sense like if, of being able to discern, right? It, 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 b- being able to always honor that your feelings are real. You can't, you can try to bypass them, but you're not going to because they're there. They're, that's the energy is moving. Emotions are just energy moving through the, our energetic system, our body, our mind. It's this is just how life is. The mind produces thoughts. The body experiences feelings that we interpret as emotions and we put labels on. Yeah, they're conceptual labels, but we can break them down to the sensations in the body and, and notice them. And the better we get at, the better we become at slowing down and parsing out what's happening in the energy in the energy in the body in a given moment. What is this feeling? Where is it in the body? What does it feel like? What is it doing? And then ultimately moving toward this sort of sense of self-nurturance of what is this tender place need right now? Oh, my stomach is completely knotted up and feeling so I came in feeling, you know, so frustrated, so angry at so-and-so for doing such and such. We start with the external, of course. And then as we quiet down, we do this as Tara Brock, one of my central teachers talks about doing the U-turn, taking our attention off of the external object and bringing the attention in internal within the, within the body and checking out what is the, what's the unmet need underneath that external focus. It's easier to blame and judge out there. feels easier. It feels a greater sense of control initially, but we're looking at, is that really true? Do we actually have control out there when we're focusing on the other person and how we want them to show up? And when we take it internally and look at what's the feeling here and start to practice just meeting the need internally, just in the moment, really simply. Like what is, oh, I'm feeling so angry, so frustrated. They did this and how dare they? I can't believe that this happened again, whatever, you know, running this whole mental narrative about how we've been wronged, wronged this victim narrative, basically always, like if we're in blame or judgment of other, there's always some sense of I've been wronged, right? Um, I'm not getting enough. I'm not getting what I need. Well, there's the cue, right? If we, we know, we have a sense that there's something we need that's feeling unmet in this moment. And we're frustrated because we want that person to give it to us and they're not. So then we're at a cross, we're at a crossroads, right? We're at a choice point there. We can either keep bonking our head against the wall and pushing that boulder uphill, trying to get our needs met. It's like trying to, you know, um, trying to go to a, a cow and like trying to get beer out of its udders. Like it doesn't, like a cow doesn't have beer, but you got to go to the right place. Like if you're like, if you are aware that this person doesn't have the capacity to give you the thing you want, are you going to keep bonking your head, trying to insist that they give it to you? Even when they've shown you, they can't do it. They don't have, for whatever reason, the bandwidth, the emotional intelligence, whatever. Um, That like, okay, so what then? We can, this is where self-compassion is so powerful. We can just take the control internally and look at like, what do I really need right now? Oh, I'm actually underneath that frustration. I'm feeling so 
um, lonely. I was really deeply craving connection in that moment with this person that I care about. And it felt so disappointing and sad and lonely. And there's grief there in that sense of disconnection. Oh, okay. Then we can feel it that we start to get in the practice of sitting with, sitting with that, allowing some space around that, uh, those more vulnerable feelings. And does that take practice at first? Absolutely. We do this tiny bit by tiny bit. We could talk about that later, but, but then once we feel that tenderness, we can ask it directly, that part of ourselves, what do you need right now? And I know that might sound woo woo to some people listening to this. If you're not familiar with self-compassion yet, completely understandable. So you're going to come in through, if you're listening to a podcast about self-compassion, I'm guessing you're curious about it, <laughs> maybe at least. So there might just be some seeds that get planted for over time, but that we start to turn toward that tender place and ask it, what is it most need right now? Well, if I'm feeling lonely and connected, often it might just be a sense of like, I need to know that someone is here with me. Well, if you're alone, sitting alone, like with tears in your eyes on your bed, having a moment, no one is with you in that moment. So who's it going to be? It's going to, it's going to be us that meets our own need. Like, so we tell ourselves it's okay. I'm here with you. And if that doesn't feel accessible, it can be imagining a good friend, extending you those well wishes, imagining um, a wise person or future wisest, most compassionate version of yourself sitting next to you. Um, it can even be imagining if your dog could talk, anything that brings up that sense of warmth and sort of safety and that feels accessible to you can just bring in that sense of like security, safety, soothing. Um, and you can, even if some soothing words to yourself or some soothing touch to yourself feels like a bridge too far, so far for you where you are on your path, um, petting a dog or a cat actually really is really effective. It does trigger oxytocin, just like the soothing words and, um, and gentle touch toward ourselves does. So it's just really anything or having a cup of warm tea and really feeling the warmth on your hands and letting yourself slow down and feeling the warmth going down all the way down into your, through your body. Um, or, I mean, taking a, taking a warm bath, whatever it might be, but really looking at what do I need right now? And how can I meet that need in some even small way in this moment? That's the practice, um, that we start with, with self-compassion. And over time, we start to notice that the more we practice that, <laughs> again, paradoxically, the better we become at holding clear, kind, but clear boundaries in our life with other people. We feel like our energy becomes less drained than it used to out in the world because we're clear on what we need. And we start to have that sense of like, well, I can meet my own needs. So I, I don't need to waste time and energy out there trying to get those needs met in all these sort of more superficial ways. You, we, can, we still have needs that need to be met on a human connection level, absolutely. So we're still gonna work in that dynamic, of course, but those are the core deep, human needs. I'm talking about the more superficial day-to-day -day needs where we're kind of like, do I really need that person to give me that? Or can I just do that for myself right now? Can I just do that? And that's not, again, that's not like a woo-woo self-care, just go get yourself a pedicure mama thing. It might be a pedicure on a given day, but it's the, it really what matters is the practice of tuning into ourselves and turning toward the need and seeing what it's calling for in the given moment. Is it calling for a break where you get to go out by yourself and a pedicure and massage of your calves during a pedicure feels really like a sense of connection and silence and peace you're craving? Well, then of course, go get the pedicure. Great, right? Like that's fine, but it's really about the practice of it can be so much more simple and it can be so much more, it can be so much quicker and just in the moment, the more we practice it, it can just be telling ourselves, it's okay, honey. Like, and if terms of endearment don't resonate for you, don't do them. Like start with, 
it's okay. Or just whatever feels at all accessible, something that is counter to the inner critic self-judgment, dismissing what you're feeling. Like you don't tell the two-year-old like, oh, that's not scary. Like we noticed, we didn't say when she heard Sammy crying, we didn't say that's not scary. There's nothing to be afraid of. Like, well, she is afraid. Of course she is. That was didn't jarring. Say, don't be scared. We didn't say don't be we didn't scared. Didn't tell her how to feel. We really said that's scary. Yeah, I get it. I feel that way sometimes too. And that element of um, human, the universality of human suffering is, as you know, core to self-compassion. Also, the sense that we're in this is normal. What this struggle we're experiencing is feels real. It is real on this relative human plane, and it's normal. Everyone who has ever walked the planet experiences moments of struggle like this, that sense of um, togetherness. And it really alleviates shame for one thing, that sense of um, I'm not the only one. Shame tells us unconsciously, usually tells us that this must just be I'm uniquely defective and alone and unlovable, et cetera. The self-compassion has this practice reminding yourself, this is hard. It is hard to be human sometimes. Everybody feels like this sometimes. And by the way, the, the follow-on with Audrey has been that she, one of the things she says most now is um, everybody cries sometimes. Everybody cries sometimes. And you can just feel her. She just like brushes it off like no big deal now. She just like, if she cries, she'll, some, she'll cry. And then like two minutes later, she'll say, she'll look at me with just like dry eyes and smile and be like, I was crying. You know, like she just like, just like you're like, yeah, you were crying. And then she'll say, everybody cries sometimes. And you can just feel how light that feels when she remembers that it's not weird it's fine it's It's just like eating a banana everybody eats bananas everybody cries everybody poops everybody sleeps everybody i mean and we actually put it that way like there are some things that will just happen in being human and crying is one of them sometimes we just like let it go that way we let the energy move it's like so what if we sort of bring a little bit of that sense of okayness Mm -hmm. to our whole experience even as adults And as you probably know, Kelsey, too, with self-compassion, one of the things that um, happens, just to mention, even if if anyone listening is like just newly considering even a little more of it's okay, (laughs) inserting a little more, injecting a little more it's okay into their own life, that there can be this quality uh, called sort of backdraft that happens when we start to introduce self-compassion, which can be, again, all this feels deeply paradoxical, but that as soon as we start to introduce more self-kindness, often what we first experience is a, this rage, this flare up of the flames of everything that feels like the opposite of kindness. So all the memories of all the ways in which we feel like we've harmed ourselves or others have done us wrong, and uh, all the reasons we can't be kind to ourselves, all the reasons that it won't work for us, all the doubt, all the shame, all the fear, that is, it tends to be, um, it's like they talk, call it backdraft because it's like when a firefighter opens the door into a, a fire, a room filled with fire, as soon as some fresh oxygen is introduced to the room, it ignites the flame, the flames get bigger at first but just at first, then once the oxygen starts to move around, there's more space, things become less combustible. The more space we hold around the quote unquote fire, the emotion, the hot emotion in our case, the more space there is over time, um, it gets less hot, the flames cool down. But at first you can kind of not be surprised and not be alarmed if you feel absolute resistance to even saying to yourself, it's okay. 
you might hear yourself try to say it's okay to yourself in a given moment. And if you've had a really harsh inner critic um, chugging away at you for, for decades, you are likely to just hear all the reasons why that's not true. It's not true that you're okay. Here's what's actually wrong with you and what's actually defective. So you can anticipate that and the encouragement is to stay with the practice. It's actually a great sign if the backdraft quality happens. It means fresh oxygen is being introduced to the system and that's what's needed for healing and space to open up over time. What, comes what up? I picture you as you're describing that is that we all start out with this closet and that's where we shove all the, all the shame, all the not enoughness, all of the maybe even self-hatred. It goes in that closet. And when we open it, holy moly. Yeah. That's right. Everything just lights on fire. But eventually we are able to like put it all up on a shelf so we can just like take a tour and be like, oh yeah, that's that like feeling of not being good enough. Huh. And it's got like no emotion. There's no flames. There's no flames there. It's just, it's a thing. It's a, it's a part of being human. Like saying I have an ulna, I have a radius and that makes my wrist. That's right. But at first it feels scary as hell to open the closet. Mm -hmm. There's a reason, there's a psychological reason that we shove all the painful feelings in the closet and try to ignore them. That's just to acknowledge. And I am imagining that you have a really savvy audience of listeners and people like are psychologically aware and all of that. But so they're probably, you know, you probably already all have a sense of this, but like the, just to really name it, it's so important to name it. Anything that our systems and our psyches have been doing on repeat in our lives has been purposeful. Our brains are hyper efficient. They're efficiency computers. They are tr always trying to, our brains, do not exist to make us happy. They exist to keep our bodies alive so that we can procreate. Our brains do not care if we are happy. Our, our egos certainly don't care if we're happy. They care if we're safe, physically safe. And where it gets confusing is when emotional risk blends in our minds with a sense of physical risk and it, our brains interpret it the same. So our brains interpret physical risk. Oh, a lion is going to come eat me. I am about to be hit by that bus in this crosswalk right now. Oh, I better like, you know, get that fight, flight, or freeze mode going to keep me safe. We have that same fight, flight, or freeze response to emotional risk. And that's where we can bring this um, investigation, this compassionate internal investigation in and start to really look at just because it, I feel unsafe in this moment, is that actually true in reality? Or is this just a perceived emotional risk that feels scary? So as in, am I actually unsafe, physically unsafe? Or does this just feel emotionally scary? If it's the latter, we can, that's malleable, right? We can start to work with that. We can cultivate this sense of resilience through our meditation practice, our mindfulness practice, our self-compassion practice, our loving kindness practices to really um, fortify this sense of inner refuge, this sense of stability, this reliable anchor within us that is immovable, regardless of external circumstance. That's really what we're doing. We're installing this sense of center that's completely immovable through these practices. So as the waves of life come, come and go, and as the scary stuff in the closet, we feel it, we notice it, we experience it over time. Yes. Like you said, they have less charge. It becomes, I have sometimes use the analogy. It's like a, um, like 
a little kid is scared of the monster in the closet. And once they go and shine a flashlight on the monster with a supportive parent or someone there to support them with, you know, so that they don't feel alone, too overwhelmed. They look and it was actually just a little dust bunny in the, in the corner. They, they were seeing a shadow of the dust bunny that looked like a monster and their mind extrapolated and like went off to the races about like what it meant, what it's going to, you know, they're going to do And so this practice of shining the light of awareness on the actual reality, that's the starting point. And, and that actually, that kind of courage actually is self-compassion. Compa- compassion is an active act. Mm, say more about that, please. Com- compassion is, is, is active. So like for those of your listeners who are familiar with loving kindness, and some of you have done some of Kelsey's meditations and things that have some loving kindness element, sort of extending ourselves well wishes and others well wishes, you know, may I, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy, those kinds of well wishes. Loving kindness is sort of cultivating a sense of an air of friendliness, a basic ground of friendliness toward ourselves and by extension toward others in the world. So sort of, again, it kind of cools down our nervous system and lets us feel more and more, may I be safe is the first phrase of loving kindness practice for a reason. It's the base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs for a reason, right? Unless we feel safe, it's the, it's the root chakra. It's like, it's the, it's the ground, it's the floor. Unless we feel safe, nothing else is able to open up. We aren't able to open up to greater levels of joy and generosity and compassion and freedom. And unless we feel physically safe and emotionally safe, um, as humans, as it turns out, we do need to feel emotionally safe that it, it it's perceived as physical as, as the same as physical risk for a reason because because emo- connection is so central to human survival. We do need emotional connection just about as much as we need water and food, you know, when it comes to actual thriving in, in, in life anyway, for sure. Um, but so loving kindness is creating this sense of this air of friendliness compassion is what happens when loving kindness meets suffering. Mm. So compassion only comes to life when there's suffering in the picture. Compassion is turning towards suffering and with the intention to do something about it. What is it before the suffering? What is the, is it just love towards uh, ourselves? Uh, like loving, uh, like loving kindness. Well, so loving kindness is just the friendliness, right? So you could just be feeling, you know, pretty content, pretty equanimous, like pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. It's like, things are just like, yeah. So things might be neutral, things might be neutral or they might be feeling good. It might be feeling pleasant or neutral. Uh, but when things start to feel unpleasant, there's that sense of suffering, right? The sense of struggle. And as soon as we feel that you're know, generally, we're generally going to feel some sense of contraction. Um, if we tune into the body and start, that can be a great place to start. It's just noticing <clears throat> anytime we're feeling like or that we're holding our breath or, or scrunching our shoulders up or clenching our jaw, I can start to tune into the cues, your particular cues in the body. For most of us, there actually aren't that many, luckily. You're going to probably notice your top few just come up on repeat all the time. Your right shoulder burns every time you get stressed out. Your, your lower teeth are clenching to your upper teeth constantly. Um, when you are around a particular person from your family or whatever, you can just start to notice the cues and then you can start to feel into what are the feelings associated with that body? What's the clenching about? What's the clenching trying to protect me from? Cause it's wise. The bo- that's the body's wisdom. It, it's a, some sense of, it's not safe here. That's, 
that's a fight, flight, or freeze response, right? Our, our blood is rushing to our hands and, and our legs telling us, get out of here. It's not safe. Or we're playing dead with a freeze response, right? We're saying like, I'm going to be as small and invisible as possible because it's not safe here. So all of these, the conditioning is so wise and normal and useful. And especially if there's trauma in, in our history, which is a whole different bucket. Um, but, but the vast majority of people have some form of trauma, have experienced some form of trauma in their lives. So it's going to get triggered by, it's going to get nicked by even the smallest thing. So suffering, um, sometimes people get caught up too in the sense of suffering. Some people just have no, uh, suffering just doesn't resonate. The word suffering, I think doesn't resonate for a lot of people. So I just want to name that too. It might be your call, call it, um, struggle, call it pain, call it contraction, call it, I'm having a hard time. Well, life is hard sometimes, whatever, whatever resonates for you, you know what it means for you. The flavor of suffering is just a sense of, this is hard. I'm having a hard time. That's what we mean by suffering. So sometimes when we hear the term suffering, uh, again, like the, this conditioned mind will sometimes be like going to this relative mode, like, well, my, I, this isn't really suffering. This can't possibly qualify as suffering when there are people literally dying of starvation across the world or whatever. Um, but it does. We, we, we have to turn toward what's actually feeling hard for us if we have any hope of filling, meeting those larger places of suffering outside of ourselves in the world. So compassion is, yeah, when it feels hard, we turn toward it and say, essentially, how can I help, right? So self-compassion, and that's what we would do towards someone else. Oh, there's a, you know, a hurricane hits and how can I, how can I, oh, I feel for these people. How can, I'm not there physically. It's not my community. And I feel this tug. What can I do? How can I help? Okay. You can get on, you know, get online, see where to donate. Do you want to take a trip? But that's compassion, right? It's love in action is compassion. And that's only called forth when there's suffering there in that particular way. So love can be a verb, of course, love is a verb um, that we enact intentionally, even when there's not suffering present. We're just saying that this is what compassion is. Compassion is this actively turning towards suffering. So for self-compassion, we have to notice first, when am I struggling and turn toward that? I don't know if that answers your question, Kelsey. Or... I don't remember what my question was. Everything you're saying is just so beautiful. And um, that... I love that you spoke to the the fact that the word suffering might not resonate for people. Um, just like I think sometimes people struggle with the idea of I'm feeling fear or I'm feeling afraid. I'm not feeling safe. Again, they'll do that relative thing of like, I'm perfectly safe. There is no tiger chasing me. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that Audrey learned the Audrey safe, Audrey safe. And that's what, so that's one thing I want us all to just be able to when we are safe, tell ourselves we're safe. I also love that she's calling herself by name. Hmm. And it's something that I have found in my self-compassion practice. When I do say, Kelsey, you are safe. Hmm. It takes it to a whole nother level rather than just, Hmm. I am safe. And sometimes I am safe and meta, meta practice is all I need. And other times Mm -hmm. it's this more like parenting aspect of Kelsey, you're, this is scary. You're okay. You're okay. Yeah. That it's, I, I really appreciate that you brought that up because that, yeah, that's, and that's why um, the encouragement definitely is to bring in a sense of someone who cares about you or someone you trust. If you don't feel like it's accessible to tell yourself it's okay when you're in a really contracted 
moment in a really scared or self-judgmental moment. Can you bring in somebody else? Yeah, because hearing it from outside, of course, this is actually just being conjured in our own mind, but our mind doesn't know the difference. So if we're telling ourselves, Kelsey, you're okay, it feels like it's coming from outside ourselves. And, and our first sense of safety did come from outside ourselves with our parents, like it or not. To yeah, whatever extent we it was available from safe. them, we weren't able to do it. That's right. Right. That's right. And so, and again, with, with little kids until a certain point, and like they, you know, my two-year-old, her prefrontal cortex is literally not developed. That's why tantrums exist and things because they know what they want, but they don't know how to effectively communicate their needs yet. And there's um, an analogy sometimes maybe between the inner critic to a tantruming two-year-old because the inner critic is like this, where the inner critic is trying to keep us safe. It's trying to express our needs actually but it's going about it in a really backwards way that makes it really hard to actually get those needs met sustainably. So that's like a tantrum in a two-year-old, right? The tantrum, they're expressing the needs, but it's less likely to get the need met because the parent is more likely to get frazzled and freaked out and be like, ah, this is, you know? And so the inner critic is like that too. So we're really softening. And, and so anything that helps as the gateway in, as the bridge in, and for sure using our own name can be really powerful. Um, again, for some people, the term of endearment can be really powerful and it can just be associative. You don't have to remember what your mom called you when you were little or whatever. Maybe they didn't call you anything, but like anything that has a flavor that's soothing. Like um, I can even give an example. Like for me last night, I was having trouble falling asleep after having heard some um, news that felt really sad and heavy from a friend just, just before bedtime unexpectedly. And so my mind was racing and, and I just kept hearing just this un, unbidden, you know, this, this, um, hearing and feeling this like, oh, sweetheart, it's okay. Oh, sweetheart, it's okay. Like, oh, honey, like, yeah, this is, this is, we don't have to deal with this all right now. Just like this sort of like constant um, stream of self-soothing messages were coming unbidden. And that's of course, because this is practice of love and kindness, a practice of self-compassion is essentially a spirit, seed planting practices. So you never know when they're gonna pour forth as we get to a certain tipping point with these practices where they become, those messages become our new default. And over time, Believe it or not, if you've never practiced these things, it really, we really can get to a point where the inner critic messages, the self-judgy messages, the, the messages that used to try to diminish and, and dismiss our feelings or our, our sense of suffering or struggle, they just literally don't come up anymore. They atrophy. Um, that doesn't happen, of course, all at once, but I want to plant the seed of the possibility aspirationally for people because if, if you're feeling like, oh, this feels like so hokey and is it really possible it could be this simple, it's just like want to like let you know that the, th these practices are literally rewiring our brain and our nervous system literally <laughs> we're forging new connections neurologically um and letting our nervous system be, be trained to a new default set point of self-compassion where where we understand that where we do have a greater sense of safety and another thing to mention too, the sense of safety, if this, if I'm safe, doesn't resonate um, in early loving kindness practice. I resisted meta practice, loving kindness practice for probably a decade of my meditation and yoga practice. I would like not even touch it. It did not resonate at all. Resisted, resisted. And then the, may I be safe phrase, I just, it did not resonate at all. And then I was like, one day on the retreat somewhere in there, I was like, ding, like I completely got it. I was like, Oh, because none of the other opening can happen until we feel safe. But I want to acknowledge that the term safety may not resonate for you at all. Don't sweat it. It doesn't matter. You can also tune into moments of neutrality actually in your day to start to balance the um, negativity bias of the brain, 
where the brain is like Velcro for the negative and like the Teflon for the positive, biologically, that's is we're hypervigilant to look for risk to make sure we stay, we do stay safe. But we can start to notice through mindfulness, mindful awareness, when am I, again, when am I actually at risk in some way that needs attending to, some way that needs action taken? And when is this just um, a habitual repetitive narrative of mind that I'm used to feeling not safe emotionally? And so I'm contracting. Do I need to be contracted here? Do I need to be getting angry here? Do I need to, you know, do I need to be acting reactively here? We can check in and, and be more responsive in our choices. But churning toward moments of when we just feel almost nothing during our day, again, maybe counterintuitively, is a, is a safety installing practice. It mm. gives it because we actually, so I want to mention this in case it feels useful to anyone for whom the safety thing doesn't resonate and the self-love stuff may seem just like a way a bridge too far and the self-compassion stuff. And um, but you can start to just notice it's basically a practice of noticing when do you ne neither feel super pleasant nor unpleasant? Tune in because the vast majority of moments of our lives were actually fundamentally okay. Like, are you dying in this moment? Like you can even just pause and check in in this moment, what's happening? Oh, you can look around the room, you can feel your feet on the ground, you can notice that your heart's beating, that blood's pumping, that your breath is moving completely effortlessly, zero effort required by you whatsoever. So in this moment, no matter what your mind tells you, you are fundamentally okay if those things are true right now, right? So the more we tune into moments of fundamental reality-based okayness, uh, physical okayness, we are starting to move toward that sense of safety and resilience. I don't know what's coming up for you with that, Kelsey. What's coming up for me is I want to just invite people also, if they are feeling physical pain in some way, to, I did a lot of work with this a couple of years ago when I had nerve pain to explore it and notice the times, because even though it might feel like something is screaming in pain all the time, when you really get into it, there might be a split second that there's no pain. That's right. And, or, and start to investigate what we mean by pain. What are we calling pain? So yeah. the mindfulness of body practice is all about slicing out, like really zooming in on the most subtle sensations. Oh, it's throbbing, it's pulsing, it's vibration, it's sensation. Oh, it just feels like energy. Oh, it feels like heat. I've been calling this all like this, uh, assigning this, this amorphous pain thing. And anytime we hear the word pain, our whole system is going to contract because we want to make sure we're safe. And if we heard the word pain, it's like, okay, hypervigilance. Like, so we're going to be look. Our, our brain is going to be looking for signs of, of pain of, to make sure that we tend to it. So with the mindfulness, yeah, we can soften in and check out what's actually happening in reality right now. So that in, like we talk about this in meditation all the time, if your knee is hurting in a meditation practice, yeah, you part of the training can be to stay, stay with it longer than you might normally not move just out of habitual pattern of moving when things feel uncomfortable, but then also bring merging the self-compassion with this that says that's wise. There, there's this fierce wisdom about it that knows when is the most useful, skillful action to shift because your knee actually is being harmed by staying for another 20 minutes in that position. And that wise discernment is what we're starting to work on. That's that intersection of mindfulness and self-compassion. They're really, really working together. Um, but yeah, with pain, for sure, you can really investigate 
what's actually happening in the direct sensations I'm experiencing in the body right now. Yeah. Melissa, we could do this all day. I am absolutely positively loving this masterclass, but we got to wrap it up. Let's do it. Um, Let's end with, imagine you've got a billboard and you can put it anywhere in the world in this magical place where you put it, every being on the planet can read it. What would it say? Mm -hmm. Let me take a moment with that. This is not something I thought of before, but what pops to mind right now, so it's what I'll go with for the moment is, um, it's safe to connect now. Oh, that me. So as you say that I picture connecting with other beings, I also see somebody plugging themselves in. Can be like for me. Yeah. Whatever, whatever. If we have a sense that we have some control over our own sense of connection, like in order to like really feel connected in this life, we have to have some sense of safety there again. Mm-hmm. So I think that sense of like that reminder to ourselves that, um, that we are connectable with one another and with ourselves and that reminder that we have some control in that, that we, that we can. And of course, I'm not talking about technologically plug in. So this might be the wrong message for the whole world right now. If that, if that would be confusing for people, but of course, yeah, like the, the figuratively plugging yeah. in to nourish, like the, the, our hand is on that plug, that reminder that, um, that we don't have to do this all on our own, this life thing, and that we in fact can't, and that we're that we aren't. Even when we think we're doing it all alone, we're not. We're just this interwoven tapestry of beings and energy and molecules. And that if we can remind ourselves that that it's that we're generally safe enough to relax into that. <laughs> and when we're not, again, we can do something different, take some action, be be smart about it. But that in general, can we just like relax and let ourselves connect? Because again, when I, I really believe that when we feel safe, we naturally connect with ourselves and with others. So these practices of self-compassion and loving kindness really are about helping ourselves feel safe first and then seeing what blossoms forth from, from that, from there. Thank you. Where can people connect with you? Uh, so my website is melissamaricoaching.com and I have some mindfulness uh, resources and guided meditations on there. People can sign up for my 14 day um, daily pause uh, freebie, which is some mini meditations and mantras and, and things that way. Um, I'm also um, at Melissa Mara Coaching on Instagram and I'm after a largely a two year pause uh, during pregnancy toddler parenting pandemic I'm sort of just re-emerging into social media slowly here and I do one-on-one coaching work um, with uh, mostly with women who are really interested in cultivating more mindfulness self-compassion and yeah it's been a pleasure to be here Mm, you are such a gift and such a beautiful being thank you so much for sharing your wisdom thank you so much for having me Kelsey pleasure Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that masterclass with Melissa. Again, you can learn about everything 
related to Melissa at melissamaricoaching.com. Now I've got something special for you. I made something that I am so excited about. It's a four week course that includes four live group coaching sessions with me. It's called four weeks to quit the stuff that isn't serving you. And it is well, all about quitting the stuff that isn't serving you. So that might be a job that might be a relationship that might be biting your nails. It might be not eating your vegetables. It might be food prison. It might be not exercising or not drinking water. It could be a million things. You are here to be super sparkly and lit up and just your aligned, incredible self. And we as humans get so distracted with all these things. Sometimes these things are for us and then they become not for us. And sometimes we forget to ditch them when they are no longer for us. So this course is an opportunity for you to ditch all the stuff that is draining you. So you can welcome more magic into your life and be your sparkly AF self. You can join us, head to kelseyabbott.com slash quit for all the details and to sign up. We start April 11th. So get on that and come join the party. And then one more note on self-compassion. If you want a little assistance in this area, of course, come work with me. But what I'm going to tell you is that a few weeks ago, I dropped a bonus episode, a meditation called Love Yourself. And that is a great introduction to self-compassion meditation. I know I ask you this every single week and I really would appreciate it if this episode resonated with you. If you would share it, please, with everybody you know and tell the world that you loved it. And if you also want to tell Apple Podcasts that you love it, that's helpful as well. Please leave us a five-star rating and a review. I love you. You are amazing. I got to go. You hear Makai breathing in the background. I don't know if the mic is picking that up, but I got to go. You are incredible. Go forth and be awesome.